You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, good to see you this morning. We are in our study of the book of Acts. We picked it back up last week with a little bit of a reset, and we will get back into it full force today. We have made it to chapter 9. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can follow along with us. We'll do a good bit of reading today as we pick up our study back in Acts chapter 9. Starting with chapter 9 in the book of Acts, the focus uh, begins to shift just a little bit, and we begin to spend a good bit of time with the Apostle Paul. So today... We actually get Paul's origin story. So you can go ahead and get ready in chapter 9. We remind you of a couple of things that we've read uh, up to this point, because chapter 9 isn't exactly our introduction to Paul. We hear a few things about him before we get to chapter 9. Chapter 9 is his conversion and how he comes to faith. And actually, when we meet Paul for the first time, he's, he's referred to as Saul. The Bible says he was called both. And his introduction begins a little bit earlier in the book of Acts when a Christian named Stephen is arguing that Jesus was God incarnate. And scripture says that Stephen is arguing persuasively and powerfully. And there's a group of religious leaders who realize they are not going to win this argument with Stephen. And more and more people are beginning to place their faith in Jesus, which means these religious leaders who denied that Jesus was God, were losing some influence and some power. I don't know if you're aware of what happens when powerful people begin to lose influence and power. They do not always react favorably. So these religious leaders make a plan. They conspire. They gather some false witnesses to lie about Stephen and claim that they've heard him blaspheme or lie about God. And so this group of leaders, they seize Stephen and they bring him into this impromptu court proceeding And they ask, are you spreading lies about God? Stephen busts into a monologue about how the nation of Israel has consistently resisted God himself throughout its history and how these people there are doing the very same thing here and now by denying that Jesus is the son of God. For his speech, Stephen gets a standing ovation from heaven, but the religious leaders are big mad. And in Acts chapter 7, this will be on the screen, But they, these religious leaders, cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. So these are grown adults putting their fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 I cannot hear you. And they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. It means they literally hit him with rocks until he died. If you can even imagine such a scene. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's his first mention in the Bible. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Acts chapter 9 is going to reveal that God answered that prayer. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the Bible's language for a believer who dies. Chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. 
This is our intro to the person you and I now know as the Apostle Paul, standing over this unjust murder of a faithful Christian like a kingpin while his henchmen lay their coats at his feet. It's a seriously dark opening scene of Paul's origin story. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That word for ravage in the Greek is actually the language for what happens when a wolf gets into a sheep pen. That's the imagery. So Saul is he's busting into people's houses, dragging people out of their homes, taking them to prison. If he finds out someone's a Christian, busting in the door at dinner time, yanking the dad out in front of the family while the mom and the kids are screaming and horrified. If he finds out that mom is a Christian, they drag her out of the house while the dad is restrained and can't do anything about it. This is parents separated from children, whole families slaughtered or imprisoned. I want you to feel what's happening here and who this person is. It's only a few lines in scripture, but I want to make sure you understand what it's saying. This gentleman is a terrorist to Christians. If you publicly admit that you worship Jesus, Saul and his men could bust through your door at any moment. He is hunting you down to destroy you. That's what we know of Saul. And then we get to chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. So what we'll do today, I want to read a bit, talk a little bit, and then at the end we'll pull some points and some applications. So we'll read through Acts chapter 9, 1 through 22 today. Here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing threats and murder. He is obsessed with every breath. What he is thinking about is hunting down and taking out followers of Jesus. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and that's just the term for Christians before they started being called Christians, because it's a way of life, following Jesus together in community. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So remember earlier it said that the the Christians, the early Christians scattered because of persecution, and they ran away. So now Saul is getting permission to go hunt them down. And the distance between where he is and where he's getting permission to travel is about 150 miles. So he's persecuted the church, murdered Stephen, Christians scatter, and now he's asking, can I get jurisdiction for 150 miles to go hunt them down? I want to go find them. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So don't miss that. Who does Jesus say that Saul is persecuting? He doesn't He doesn't say you're persecuting my people, stop it. He doesn't say you're you're persecuting those who follow me and who worship me. Jesus says you're persecuting me, 
that when you attack my people, it's an attack on me, myself. That's how Jesus relates to and feels about his people, the church. He identifies so much with us that he actually just calls us him. But rise, verse six, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So it sounds a little bit like maybe he's in shock. So he's been hunting down anyone who says Jesus is Lord. Out of nowhere, Jesus shows up, smacks him to the ground, blinds him. And so now Saul doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's disoriented. A couple things to, to point out. There's, sometimes this is a bit what it's like when a person comes to faith. There are people around you who are hearing the same things, the same sermons, the same arguments, reading the same books, but they don't, they don't hear it or see it like you do because for you it just seems so personal, like, like God is communicating directly with you. You aren't exactly sure how you know, but you just know he's pursuing you in a sense. And this would be many of our stories in the room. And then second connection to make, Paul is blinded. So part of what God is doing here is he's mirroring Saul's physical condition with his spiritual condition. So physically he had sight, but spiritually he was blind. He didn't see who Jesus really was. He's not seeing, quote, the glory of God in Christ, to quote something that Paul would say later in the book of Corinthians. He's spiritually blind, and so God allows him to experience physically what had been true of him spiritually. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house, it's not a great street name, just if I'm honest, that's gotta be hard to find. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name, which is an entirely reasonable response. Saul is basically a Christian serial killer whose main goal in life has been to wipe out people like Ananias. And now he has government permission to do exactly that. So from Ananias' perspective, this is an insane request. He's told to go help the person who's been hunting his people down. It's not all that different from maybe a Jewish person during World War II being told to go find Hitler and give him some medicine. So he says, no, he's actively trying to kill me. I don't want to help him. This is dangerous. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God says, Saul belongs to me now. And now instead of making Christians suffer, he will suffer for telling people that they actually should become Christians. Verse 17, 
So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And check out just this absolutely crazy lifestyle turnaround. Verse 20, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Turns out I was wrong, and Jesus was right. He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Is is this a trap? Is this a trick? What is happening here? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he goes from terrorizing those who claimed that Jesus was God to doing everything he can to prove to others that Jesus was in fact God. This is a total about face when he meets Jesus. Paul goes on to become the greatest missionary ever. He would go on to write 13 of the 27 New Testament books. It is a crazy conversion story. So there's a lot that's happening here. Tons that we could potentially take away. But seeing as how this is the story of how Saul or Paul came to faith, I want to keep our takeaways on the topic of salvation and coming to faith. And I want to look at some other places in Scripture where Paul writes about this event that we just read. So let me just tease out some stuff for us. Here's point one. First thing we learn, it is possible to be wrong about God. It's possible. So later in the book of Acts, in chapter 22, Paul actually tells this same conversion story. He adds just a little bit of an extra detail there. Let me read this to you. This is Paul talking about this this event. But in Acts chapter 22, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way, or Christians, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness." From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul says that he studied under this rabbi named Gamaliel, who's one of the leading scholars in that day. He's one of the greatest Old Testament teachers that there was. So, So Paul not only knew the Bible, he learned it from one of the leading scholars of that time. And in fact, he probably would have had most of the Old Testament memorized Not like he had actually read it one time in his life. Memorized. So he is very religious. He's very devoted. He's very sincere. He's very committed. And he's very wrong. He thinks he knows who God is. But when the Son of God appears in front of him, Saul's first words are, Who are you? Did you catch that? He thought he knew what God was like and what God wasn't like. He had this clear view in his mind of who God was. 
I mean, as a, as a Jewish man, I'll give you an easy example. As a Jewish man, Paul would have thought that God could not become a human being. So all this stuff about Jesus's claims to him obviously couldn't be true. So that's why that's part of the many reasons why Paul doesn't say when Jesus shows up, oh, hey, God, he says, who are you? Now, I'm actually making a big deal out of this because sometimes I hear people say things like, it doesn't matter what you believe about God so long as you're sincere. Have you heard this? Maybe even you would think this. People say, I think God is different things to different people. So this story that we just read about the Apostle Paul confronts that idea. Let me explain why. If someone asked you, do you believe that Adam Gibson exists? And you were to say, absolutely. Adam Gibson, that's, that's me, by the way. <laughs> Adam Gibson is the six foot five inch starting shooting guard for the Charlotte Hornets. Now, do I wish that I was the starting shooting guard for the Charlotte Hornets? Yeah, sounds amazing. I mean, like if I get to pick, I might pick a better NBA team, but I'll settle. I'll settle. A multi-million dollar deal with the Hornets is fine. It doesn't matter, though, what I wish I was or what you imagine me to be. I am certain things and I am not certain things because I exist. That's how it works. Anything that actually exists is certain things and is not certain things. So if God exists, then he is certain things and he's not certain things. No different from how I exist, therefore am and am not certain things. Anything that actually exists is certain things and is not certain things. This is absolutely obvious, what I just said. I hope it does not sound insightful. Absolutely obvious, and I can prove it. I can prove how obvious it is. The other day, my four-year-old came to me, and he said, Daddy, could I have an orange? And I went and looked and we didn't have any oranges. And so I handed him an apple. And he said, Daddy, this is not an orange. <laughs> this is an apple. Because even my four-year-old understands that if something exists, it is certain things and it's not certain things. That's how obvious it is. And yet I hear brilliantly intelligent people say stuff like, I just think God is whoever we imagine him to be. And it's like, bro, you're a genius, but even my four-year-old knows that doesn't make any sense. If God exists, then he is certain things and is not certain things, which means it's possible to be wrong about God. And the Apostle Paul realized that he was, that who he thought God was and what he thought God was like was not actually who God was or what God was like. And the thing that changed Saul's mind is point two. Paul realized that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He realized Jesus actually rose from the dead. This was what changed his mind. Here's how he talks about it in the book of Galatians. Again, he's recounting what we've just read in Acts chapter nine. Galatians chapter one, he says, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism and how I persecuted the church of God violently, trying to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Reveal his son to me. So when Paul looks back on that moment in his life, he says what changed his whole trajectory 
What changed his mind about God was that Jesus was revealed to him. He had an encounter with the risen Christ and the realization that Jesus actually rose from the dead changed everything for him. Now, here's why I think that's so critical. That's so important. Because when Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had all sorts of objections to Christianity. Lots of things that didn't make sense to him, questions about the faith, and outright objections. Things about Christian belief and practice that simply did not fit how he saw the world. Which is important because it's just like lots of Americans today. People have plenty of objections and concerns and questions about Christianity. Now, usually we have a different set of objections than, say, the Apostle Paul did before he was converted. So for us today, people would say all sorts of things. Maybe someone would say, I can't become a Christian because I look throughout church history and I just see too much injustice and it's an objection and I I can't do it. Someone else might say, the Bible keeps saying that God is good and powerful and loving, and I cannot make sense of why there's so much evil and suffering in the world. So that's my objection, and I can't become a Christian. Someone else might say, the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to be made right with God, and that doesn't square with how I see the world, how I see other faiths. What about people who've never heard about Jesus? How could I possibly believe in Christianity with this set of problems that I have, with this set of questions that I have? And so Saul has a set of questions and objections. They're different from ours, but to him, they're every bit as strong. So I already mentioned one. As a Jewish man, to him, there's no way God could become a man. It's not possible. So it's a non-starter. Another example for him would be that as he read the Old Testament, and it says, there is one God and only one God. And in fact, this would have been a part of his daily prayers. Every day he would have recited the passage from Deuteronomy that says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And then here's Jesus. And Jesus says he's God, but then Jesus is talking to God the Father. So how could Jesus be God if there's only one God? The Bible says there only, there's only one God. So, so to Saul, Christianity just cannot be true. But I want you to notice what happens on the road to Damascus. When Jesus shows up to him, does Jesus say, hey, Saul, let let me explain the doctrine of the Trinity to you. You see, there is one God, but there's three persons in this one God. No, that's not not what he says. And yet, Paul becomes a Christian. He's, He's converted. Why? Well, because Jesus is standing in front of him alive. So, I don't understand the Trinity, but if he's alive, then obviously he's right. He rose from the dead. Everything he says must be true. I don't know what the answers are, but all I know is if he's standing there in front of me, there must be an answer. So even though I don't have all the answers to my questions and objections, Paul becomes a Christian. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, raised from the dead, like physically raised from the dead, then everything he says has to be true, whether or not it makes sense to me. So this is why if Jesus rose from the dead has to be the central point of investigation and concern when you're considering the Christian faith. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? So some of us in the room might say, yeah, 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 but I don't agree with the biblical sex ethic. I don't like what the Bible says about gender. We can talk about all of that. We do talk about all of that. But the question is, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? 
And if he did, then he's God. So he's right about everything. And if he didn't, then why do we care about anything he said? He's just another teacher of which there have been hundreds. And in fact, he's a lying teacher because he claimed that he would rise from the dead. And if he didn't, then let's stop caring. Let's just go to brunch. We're wasting our time here. So this is why in his ministry, Paul talks about the resurrection the way that he does. Let me just, I'll give you one example. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read this and I just, I want to tease out one point here. This is why Paul talks about the resurrection the way that he does. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. All right, so when Paul says that 500 people saw the resurrected Christ all at once, and most of them are still alive, Scholars say that he wrote this, this passage of 1 Corinthians, somewhere around 32 years after the death of Jesus. So 32 years after Jesus died, we have eyewitnesses who are still alive, and there's a public document. He writes a public document that says they saw him, they interacted with him. You could go talk to him. You could corroborate this. There are multiple witnesses who are still alive. He didn't write this 80 years later or 100 years later, where there would have been time for a legend to actually grow. Legends do not develop that fast, not in 32 years with many eyewitnesses still around to refute what is a public document. Now, some of you are too young and you think 32 years sounds like a really long time and anything could happen in that amount of time. You're wrong. I can prove it. A few months ago, I was at a funeral. It was a friend's mother who had passed and I saw some of the guys that I grew up with. And so we, you know, we gathered around and we were all telling stories and just remembering. And, and one of my friends said, hey, you guys remember when that snowstorm hit and we all played outside all day when we were eight years old? And eight years old was 32 years ago for me. Exactly the length of time from Jesus's death to Paul writing 1 Corinthians and claiming he rose from the dead. 32 years ago, remember the snowstorm? And we were like, oh man, that was awesome. It was so much fun. We don't get a lot of snow in Columbia. So we were freaking out. Snowball fights and snow cream. Of course we remember. So imagine in that circle of friends as we're reminiscing, imagine if someone said, I remember that time when Chad died, but then three days later, he was like back alive. And we would all be like, no. No, Chad didn't die. <laughs> And race from what are you talking about? Because 32 years is not a long enough time for a legend to come up. See, some of you have been told this is all a legend. It just came up over time. It's actually not possible. There are other objections much stronger than that one. That one you're going to need to delete from your mind. It's just not possible. It happened too soon. If you wait 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, yeah, you can have a legend that rises up amongst people. But in this short length of time, the only way you can get away with something like what Paul just said and wrote in a public document is if it actually happened. And if it actually happened, it should change your mind. Even if you have tons of other objections, we can talk about all the objections. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God and he must be right about everything else. And it has to all be true. And that's what Paul realized. And that's why it changed his mind. 
Third thing that we take from Paul's conversion story. I want to hit this one quickly. I just don't want you to miss it. You can't outrun Jesus. I'm saying this because I think this is happening to some of you in the room. When God begins to communicate with you, pursue you, draw him to yourself, you can run, but you cannot hide. I hope you heard the way that that God talked about Saul, even in the story in Acts chapter 9. He said things like, I have chosen him. He belongs to me. God is absolutely confident in how this is going to end. He knows that his pursuit of Saul will end up with Saul coming to faith and becoming known as the Apostle Paul. Now, this pursuit, the way that God pursues us, is not always the same. Not at all, actually. So for some of you, you came to faith by wrestling with some intellectual doubts and questions, and somewhere along the way you realized the claims of Christianity really do make sense, that Jesus really did rise from the, day, from the dead. Others of you, God used a community of faith to pursue you and draw you to himself. You saw the way that they interacted and there was something in that that God used to to communicate, pursue you. For others, maybe it was your parents. They were faithful Christians who loved you and told you about Jesus. You came to faith. But no matter what, you can run, but you cannot hide when God comes after you because you just, you know that he's talking to you. And maybe even your friends are like Saul's friends where they hear the same things, but they don't make sense to them. But you just know that God's talking to you. You don't know how you know. You just know it. In Jesus' own words, he says he came to seek and save the lost. That's why C.S. Lewis once called Jesus the hound of heaven because of the way that he tracks down people. I'm pointing that out because I know for a fact that this is what's happening to some of you, that God is coming after you. And I'm just letting you know as a heads up, you can't outrun Jesus. Number four, last point. We learn from the story that salvation is by grace. So elsewhere in his writings, later, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. But it's not our works. It's not our efforts. It's not our ability to clean ourselves up. It's not penance. It's not paying back and doing enough good to outweigh our previous bad. It's, it's grace. It's a gift of God. If you want an acronym for grace, It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And even in this story, there's a little example of this, a little bit of proof. Um, When Ananias, I love this, when Ananias meets Paul for the first time, remember, he's, he's heard horror stories of what this man has done. Jesus says, trust me, he's mine now. I don't know if you noticed what Ananias calls Saul. He meets him for the first time, this Christian serial killer who's now become a Christian, and he calls him Brother Saul. That's how he refers to him, brother, as in adopted into the family of God, full participant in the body of Christ, brother. This is what it means to become a Christian. I don't care what you've done. If your faith is in Jesus, then you're my brother. You're my sister. You've been adopted. You're in him. You're in the family because we're saved by grace. So this should give you so much hope So much hope. First of all, it means there's hope for me and for you. Because if Saul can become a Christian, then literally anybody can. If he can be forgiven and accepted by God and by God's people, then absolutely anyone who has done anything can become a Christian and be accepted by God and accepted by God's people. So I don't know what your story is, but I don't don't need to know what your story is. You have not and you cannot outsend the grace of God. This is what Jesus dying on the cross secured that anyone, no matter who they are, can come to him in repentance and faith and find forgiveness and acceptance and welcome. 
So it gives us hope. It also should give us hope for the people that we love and we care about who we want to meet Jesus. Because whoever was on your list of least likely to become a Christian, it is Saul. He's literally breathing murder against Christians. So if you're thinking, I hear you about having hope for other people, but Adam, you do not know my uncle. I mean, he is so antagonistic. Okay, is he breathing murder against you? No, he just like argues and he's mean. All right, he's still in the game. No one is too far. No one is too far. We should never stop praying for the people we love because salvation is by grace. So later in one of his writings, Paul actually says what we should learn from his conversion story. He talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul later says that he's a pattern or example for all of the rest of us, that his conversion story is a pattern for us to follow. Probably not in the dramatic details, but it's a pattern nonetheless, a pattern of repentance and faith, of baptism, of identification with the church, and of ministry and mission. All right, so some of you, you got questions and doubts. You don't understand certain aspects of the Bible or Christianity or faith. You ought to get in a life group so you can ask those questions in community. Let others come alongside of you as you sort it all out. We, got, we have life groups all over the Columbia area full of people who would absolutely love to help. You have questions. They might have answers or they might say, I have no idea. Let me see if I can find a resource and we can get some answers together. But the central question you should focus on is whether or not Jesus actually rose from the dead. Others of us become Christians, but we've never been baptized. So we see the pattern all over Scripture, and here again with Paul. He becomes a Christian, and his response is to be baptized. It's a public way of identifying with God and his people. So maybe your next step is that you should sign up to get baptized. Maybe some of you are believers, and you've identified yourself with Jesus through baptism, but never identified yourself with Jesus' people through church membership. So you need to find a healthy church. Commit yourself to that group of people through membership. We actually have a Midtown class coming up. You can find out more information about our church, ask questions, and potentially become a member if you think it's a good fit. And then lastly, you'll notice that Paul immediately begins to minister to others because to be a Christian is to be a servant to others according to your, to your giftedness. So to follow Paul's pattern, if you're not currently serving and ministering to others in some way, that would be a great next step for you to consider. So let me pray, and we'll give you some time to consider some next steps, and we'll have some time to respond.